force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Soft Rep Radio on time, on target, episode number 468. I'm Dennis Jones. That's Jack Murphy. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, We never gave away who's coming on today. We teased it. Yeah. And I'm excited. I know you certainly are. Yeah, yeah. There's a... I mean, this gentleman was in the military for a long time, uh... His name's uh, Jason Bailey. Uh, served in the Army Counterterrorism Unit for a long time. I think he's in like what? He's in, served. I think he's in the Army for like twenty. He served years. twenty-five years in the Army, seventeen years, and across uh, different special, special operations, operations units. Um, yeah. So I mean, very interesting guy. Very interesting career. We had, we had a phone conversation uh, a while back. Just he wanted to kind of get a feel for what we would talk about. Um, just seems like a super smart guy, really good dude. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm excited to have him on. And he was most notably in the Battle of Mogadishu. Yeah, he was, uh, among many other things. So we'll touch upon a lot of that, or we'll touch upon as much of it as we can. Um, we might have to actually, I might actually have to ask him to come on for a second appearance at some point because just somebody who's done as much as he has. Yeah. Is, I mean, 25 years in the military, yeah, that's you, a, that's a lot to cover. And, in, and, in an and also out of the military. I mean, we talked a lot about like transitioning out of the military and, and some of the difficulties that, that even he had, um, transitioning out. So there's a lot to talk about there, which is, I mean, he'll be on later in this episode. So. You guys will enjoy it. I'm not going to say hopefully you will. You will. I can assure you of that. He is. It's going to be quite an interview. As we've had the past few. I mean, we've been rolling. I mean, as we say, the uh, they're all uh, listener requests. I feel like for yeah. the most part, right outside. Did you now? You got Jason on your own, right? Uh, or no. What? A listener brought uh, said th- my a listener came to me and said this is the guy you need to talk to. Because he worked with Jason on the civilian side, okay, uh, and was like, "This is the guy you really need to talk to." Um, so I reached out to him, and, um, and and of course, there's some people in common. You know, Jason. Uh, I think he he said he went through OTC with George Hand, uh, another get previous guest mm-hmm. of the show. He served alongside Rob Trevino, another former guest of the show. Um, Software radio popular. Yeah, so I, I mean, it's just uh, it's funny when you start talking to these people and all the all the all the different personalities that uh, that you end up having in common with them. Um, I, I actually reached out to another friend of mine who uh, is a retired operator who I won't say his name here, but um, another guy who probably has like 27 years of experience in the special operations world. And I was like, 
And it's like, hey, man, do you, do you know uh, Jason Bailey? He's like, I've known Jason for decades. He's a great person, great American. And to get it, to hear that from from this guy that I, I hit up about it, I mean, says a lot. I f- yeah, I feel like military men don't throw the term great American loosely. No, especially not this guy wouldn't. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm probably embarrassing Jason already before we even have him on. But um, he just came very highly recommended. Which, uh, coming from other people, like... That's the highest praise you can get. Hey, you should have him on for X, Y, and Z reasons. All right, we, we did the homework, and Jason will be on later. Before we get to Jason, um, as the listeners know, we record on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then the episode is uploaded on Wednesdays and Fridays. So this past Thursday, we recorded, and unfortunately for us, um, so this is a little bit of old news, but the Eddie Gallagher trial is going on. Major... Uh, Controversy—I don't know what to call it—but it almost a scene out of a movie was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was his name? Corey Scott. What was he? Special Warfare Operator First Class. Corey Scott claims that Eddie Gallagher didn't kill the guy. The the ISIS detainee. No, he said he did it himself. And Mercy killed him. Stand. He yeah. he said that Gallagher stabbed him. Yes. And they they had him stabilized, but after realizing what um. With the ERD, he's he's seen them rape and um, like torture prisoners in the past. E- ERD is like a Iraqi special operations mm-hmm. unit that we trained um, and work with. He's seen them. He said he's seen them uh, rape and torture people in the past, detainees in the past. So he he feared that that was going to happen to this ISIS soldier. So he did the old thumb over the breathing tube trick and. And asphyxiated him. Yeah, asphyxiated him. That so that was just it was just wild. Um and what it what it all does is you have to keep in mind that in America, the way our justice system works is we convict people if we believe if the jurors believe that they're guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. Um it's not guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt. When you have the medic who is the prosecutors he was a prosecution right, witness. Right. They put him on the stand, and they asked him, you know, did you see Chief Gallagher uh, murder? Uh, or or I be, No, I'm sorry. It was during cross-examination. It was, it, it was during cross. And the, the, the defense lawyer uh, said, you know, did Chief Gallagher murder this detainee? And he was like, no. He said, who did? And then this is where he tells a story about how he put his thumb over the breathing tube and, and finished him. Now, Gallagher is being charged with murder. The murder of this kid, he's not being charged with uh, manslaughter or accomplice to murder or anything like that. He's right. being charged with murder. And now here's the prosecution's witness saying, no, I killed him. Uh, so this introduces from, uh, I know, I don't know, have any more knowledge than what I read in the papers like the rest of you guys out there. I'm not a juror. I, I don't have all the information mm-hmm. that they have. But on the outside looking in, this introduces reasonable doubt. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Because you have other witnesses who say, yes, Chief Gallagher murdered this detainee. And then you have the medic who said, no, I did it. It's like, what do you, I mean, now you have to wonder, like, what's true? Now, is it true that this this, uh, witness who, this medic is lying? Yeah, it's possible. Especially considering he has immunity. He was given immunity for his um, His testimony. testimony. It's going to be interesting to see if they decide to charge him or not, because... They'd have to prove perjury, but I, geez, I don't even know how that's going to go. But I think, yeah, if you're if you're a juror, 
now you have to wonder who's telling the truth here because it's all based really the uh, as far as i can tell the entire case is based on witness testimony and yeah. it, it is really hard to get a conviction solely based on witness testimony at this point it's called um you can read about it it's, uh like prosecutors call it the csi effect mm-hmm. that uh jurors from what they see on television watching like csi vegas and all this stuff they, they expect like forensic evidence for everything yeah, like I, expect, need, I need like science like in D- front of i me. need dna evidence for everything right. and again we convict based on whether the person is deemed to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, not beyond a shadow of a doubt. So you don't need DNA to convict, but it is in the minds of uh, jurors apparently that they want to see that, that standard of evidence before convicting. This case appears to be based largely, if not entirely on witness testimony. Mm -hmm. And now even your witnesses are telling wildly different stories, which is like, to be in that courtroom, I mean, obviously neither of us were, but just that, that's a bombshell. Like, you are not expecting that. And he, did you see him kill? Did you see Ch- uh, Gallagher kill? No. And it's like, well, wait, what? What did you say? You said no? It's uh, like you almost picture like a few good men where it, you goddamn right I ordered the code red. It's like, it's one of those <laughs> moments. Like, no, I killed him. And it was like, wait, wait, you killed him? And then he, you know, he stabbed him. We stabilized him. But this guy was going to get, you know, he was going to get shit stomped in and whenever we hand them over. So I did him, you know, I did him a favor. And it's like, wait, what the fuck? You've been sitting on this for how long? Like, and, and apparently, I mean, it's I guess there's going to have to be some like massive or there needs to be some sort of like massive, like sort of after action review or IG investigation. Like, how did the prosecution fuck all of this up right. so bad? Like. Yeah, they should. All this, these witnesses are supposed to be vetted before they go on the stand. Mm-hmm. Um, unless the guy totally just changed his story, then then you're looking at perjury. Um, and then, but then there are other things the prosecution did. The whole like um, uh, uh, supposedly putting tracking software and emails, and the lead prosecutor was removed just like a week before the trial. Like that's not a small thing. Yeah, no, that's it, 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 to have the lead prosecutor. Now, I, I like on one hand, it's like okay, so you had software that told you if an email was opened. I don't really totally understand what the context was. Um, but the fact that the judge looked at it with all the information and the judge made a determination that the lead prosecutor needed to be removed, like there was something there. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was something serious, and it's not a small thing for the lead prosecutor to be removed a week before the trial or the court-martial. Um, that, I mean, that, that prosecutor who was removed, I mean, he'll probably never prosecute another case again. I mean, his career is probably tanked. Most likely, yes. Yeah. So... Good lord! I mean, I mean it, really, it's a scene, like it's a scene out of uh, like a television. It's like that. Just seeing, I mean, you know, we record like I said, we record on Thursday, so you go home and it's like all over the news. It's like, wait, what? Like he, you're just, you can't even wrap your head around. I it. mean, uh, and then there's been um, other other seals uh, who have been called to the stand uh, over the last few days. Um, to testify about um, Chief Gallagher allegedly shooting civilians uh, from the sniper tower mm-hmm. uh, or whatever it was, wherever the sniper hide was, um, and they were up there, and they said that Gallagher was shooting civilians, um, that he, like, shot an old man or he was shooting at an old man, that he shot a girl, um, and then he'd, like, come over the radio and say, like, you know, you guys missed him, but I got him. And then the, the the defense tried to poke holes in it. They're like, well, so you were in a different tower. You were in a different sniper hide, so you didn't see him pull the trigger. 
I mean, that's what that's what defense attorneys do. Yeah, yeah. Well, in that case, I would say, again, on the outside looking in, you have not given me reasonable doubt. Right. Right. Uh, like, do I really believe that some ninja snuck into that same sniper hide and, 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 and like pulled right, the trigger right. on Chief Gallagher's sniper rifle? Yeah. Like, do I believe that? No, uh, there's no, in my opinion, there's not a reasonable doubt in that case. But I mean, that's for the jury to decide. It, it, it's uh, a jury will have to speak on this issue. And the fact that there is uh, contrary evidence, you know, going back and forth, that there are holes in, in, in everyone's story, quite frankly, like some sort of Rashomon type situation, I think just speaks to the fact that this case really did need to go to court martial and it really did need to be prosecuted. And the, the witnesses needed to testify. The evidence needed to come out. And, um, you know, if, if Chief Gallagher is deemed innocent, then it's a travesty, really, that he was put through this. Um, and again, I think that there has to be like a, a full-blown investigation into how the military gathers evidence and interviews mm-hmm. witnesses and prosecutes crime. Um, but they may come back with a guilty verdict. I mean, we still don't know. Now, I want to, I don't know law that well, and I don't know. I took one semester of business law that in counts. college, and I'm not afraid to use it. All right, well, <laughs> good, because I'm going to put you to the test right now. So so with Corey Scott, um, immunity covers him for, for the murder of this guy, right? Now, what happens, like, if it turns out, you know, he's, if it is perjury, he can get charged for the perjury? I believe he can. I believe he can. Okay. But um, they're going to have to prove that. Right, obviously. Right? And the prosecution's track record doesn't seem so great right now. Certainly not. You know what I mean? So who knows, man? Because that, you know, this is this is one of your witnesses, and, and he's sitting, like, he's just sitting this whole time, like, I killed him. Like, you don't think you would bring that up to the, to the guy? Like, probably, well, probably not, because there's also that, I don't want to say conspiracy theory, but... What if he's looking out for Eddie Gallagher? Well, yeah, that's that's always the 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 doubt, right? That's the that's kind of the the other side of reasonable doubt is because even the the um, prosecutors asked him like, you know, maybe you just don't want Eddie Gallagher to go to jail, and and this guy Corey Scott was yeah, like, I don't want yeah, him to go to jail. Doesn't. So is it po- again? Is it possible he's lying? It's it's possible. It's certainly possible. I, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't see him put his thumb over the over the. Right. The tube. So maybe it's uh it's wild, man. I mean, stand by because the made for TV movie is coming. The, oh, the, book, the book is coming. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, some of the people involved in this trial are going to end up like news commentators on Nancy Grace, like the, like the OJ Simpson trial. <laughs> they, yeah. <laughs> Did you see um too? They had, Again, now who knows when this really took place? But they had drone footage of the alleged ISIS guy dead on the ground and seals around him. And one guy was like playing with a drone, and he's kind of like hovering it over. Like the, it's you can see the dead body in the video, like clear as day. They got a uh, they got a blanket over him, but like his feet are out, his arms out, and he's just the guy's just flying the drone. And they're saying it was this is the guy that allegedly Eddie Gallagher killed. But then it was like, like right then it's like there's no timestamps, there's no nothing like that. Like, you're what you're bringing to light is like it, it inconclusive. Yeah, it's very inconclusive. Like there's no there's nothing. You just see guys walking. You can't really tell. 
I, I think what we can say for sure, based on what has come out, is that this SEAL platoon was completely out of control. Like, they're just gonzo, out-of-control, stupid shit happening left yeah. and right. Like, this was not... What was going on in that platoon was not professional. Mm. And I understand, like, we have our moments of immaturity. Uh, Certainly I do. You know, I did when I was in the military, but this is, like, out of control, like, just, like, crazy stuff. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> just the, whatever happened, whether Eddie Gallagher did or did not do any of this stuff, that their, their officer was up on the rooftop DJing while they were all drinking, and then they'd go and, like, shoot at civilians from the sniper hide. Like, what the fuck were you got? What? Now, I mean, you would, you're the man to answer this. Like, how, how does something like that happen? It's just, like, the... It's culture. It's a cultural issue, and it, uh, it, it depends strongly on the uh, leadership and that I was going to say back and, and their personalities, the personalities of the leaders. Right. Like I, I think back to Ben Blum talking about his, his cousin and it's how it's just like, right. You know, you get a crazy leader and it almost trickles down and it's like, well, oh, hundred percent. Like, it does. all right, this guy's nuts. Like, I guess we have to be nuts. And like, it gives permission to everybody right, else. Yeah, it's like, like, you know, if you're the inmates are running the asylum, yeah. If your chief or you're, uh, in, in the, in the army, it would be our platoon sergeant is just like an out of control dude who does whatever and, and just kills whoever. I mean, that, that ch- sends a message to his men. This is the, this it's, is how it's we, it's the wild west. Like you can do what yeah, you want you, free for all. So, yeah, man, it, it's definitely an issue of unit culture, um, and it's an issue of the specific personalities that are in charge. Now, does like you can't really remedy that because you can well, with, I mean, account- you, with accountability for sure. But but in the sense that like you can't you can't prevent it, almost like pre crime, like a what was that Minority Report? You there's no way of. I mean, maybe there is a way of knowing. Like you, I've asked you, especially I remember asking with Ben, but like. Can you tell who's going to be like a good leader or not? Or you, can you kind of can you kind of fake your way through it and then let your trooper like you know? All right, look, I want to be a platoon sergeant. You know, keep my head on straight. Let me get through, and then I can like. And then once I'm in power, I can kind of do what I want. Or, or are these guys just something's wrong from jump? I mean, it depends on the on the person. I think like that guy um, Elliot Somers, who mm-hmm. was involved in the that the the team leader who instigated the bank robbery right. in Tacoma, the ranger that we talked about with Ben Blum. I don't think that guy would have gone very far past team leader um, because I don't think – he he seems like he's a legitimate diagnosed uh, psychopath. Okay. I, don't, I don't think he could fake the funk to get to that level. <laughs> well worded. Um, but there are various levels of being like a sociopath that – you can actually thrive in the military because of the which is the scariest part, right? Like if if you can you know hide one personality, or have the wherewithal to be like, look, you know, I know who I am. They don't need to see it until a lot of it isn't hiding it though. I, I think it's just you know the military has been hurting after you know seventeen, eighteen years of war. The force is kind of frayed. Um, okay. Some things are coming apart at the seams. Um, I don't I don't think it's quite as hard to get promoted through the ranks as some people think. Um, you know, there, there, there's a certain, the military has a certain desperation. And I mean, I know that comment won't necessarily go over well, but, and there are many, many professional NCOs and officers out there. Uh, but dude, it's like there, uh, there are quotas we have to fill. Now the military does have the benefit of, um, 
evaluating people as they rise through the ranks. So it's not like you're getting an unknown product. Right. Right. So this person, you know, like speaking in the army rank system, uh, you know, this person was a team leader and then they were a squad leader and then they became a platoon sergeant. So like we have opportunities to look at them and look mm-hmm. at their personalities. Progress like, reports almost. Like before you become a sergeant major. So you would go from platoon sergeant to first sergeant and then sergeant major. And like I've even had people tell me like there's there is a sergeant's major mafia and they look at you to see if you're the type of personality mm-hmm. that they want to promote to sergeant major. Um, so they do look at you in that in that sense. But then also we have to say like is is this like out of control behavior is the um whatever Chief Gallagher did or did not do overseas I mean is is that type of person that we're discussing the person who's like a psychopath is that common in the ranks um I I would stop short of saying that I don't I don't think that's the case okay I, but I think those people are out there for sure and um where was I going with that sorry I lost my train of thought but. <laughs> I think you answered my question, took it a little farther. So I don't know where I don't know where you're going because it was your train of thought. But we can get off at this stop here. <laughs> <laughs> the train the train will end here. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it circles back to Eddie Gallagher. This whole thing is just fascinating in the sense that. And, and SOCOM initiating that like ethics review across the force, um, and I don't think that was based on this necessarily, but on. Also, everything going on with uh, Logan Melgar, mm-hmm. who was killed in Mali by uh, a couple a couple dev group guys and a couple Marine Raiders were involved in that. I, I mean, there's a bunch of different things happening that lead you to believe that there's some sort of systemic breakdown in the force. Put it that way. Okay. Um, what like what can be done then? What how do you repair that? I think by having standards and I think by having accountability, um, I think that these units have, uh, they have to have an esprit de corps, especially in elite units. And something has to be done for the, uh, both the morale of the troops, um, their mental health, as we talked about last time on the last episode. Um, and, and it's also, it's just, it, it's a matter of like the work environment it's a matter of the personalities that you promote. It's a, it's a question of ethical leadership is really what, what's at the heart of it. Now, how do, I'm just asking questions here, so if you don't have answers, you don't have answers. But, I mean, it, it, I don't want to say it's like a boys club, but you want accountability. But it goes back to like what's, what Steven said last episode, how you know when everything went down with the Pat Tillman stuff and the higher-ups were just kind of yep. like, here's the story we're going to tell. Sorry, Stephen. Like you're getting thrown under the rug. Like yep. you're going to have to deal with. It. How do you get it so that the higher ups are held accountable? Like that's they almost. Uh, it almost feels like they always they always have that safety blanket. Like at the very least, we're going to cover our own ass, and, and whoever fall whoever yeah. falls under and it. That, is that tough happens titties. all the time. I mean, I think one of the things that has happened is that it used to be that NCOs, that the non commissioned officers, would push back against stupid shit. What has happened since the war broke out, I feel, is that the garrison world, the garrison life, and that control from these the, from the brass has gotten more and more and more restrictive, and the NCOs have kind of stopped pushing back because they're like, oh, we're going to war. So, like, all that stuff's going to go away. Well, then what happened was we brought the garrison to war with us, mm-hmm. and we started bringing that overseas. 
Um, but I, I, th- I really do think that we have created a culture now where NCOs have had their balls cut off and they just don't push back against the stupidity. Um, now, the, the flip side of that is the NCOs have to be professional themselves as well. Right. Um, and now if the brass is acting stupid, the, uh, so to speak, the, the higher, um, higher ranking officers or even mid-grade officers are acting stupid as well as the enlisted guys, now, then we're really in for a shit show at that mm-hmm. point. Okay, I mean, that does answer it. Uh, This whole thing is just... Every day there's more questions that, that get asked because because of this I don't want to call it a circus is that it is it, I mean it, it, are we there yet yeah it's a it's a murder trial and, I, and yeah I don't want to make light of it but um yeah I don't say circus jokingly but, but yeah it has turned into a three ring circus it's like what the fuck stay tuned I guess the more Eddie Gallagher news that comes out we'll obviously uh discuss it on here um is there anything else you want to you want to bring up before we bring uh Jason on not really no um you know, I'm still working on a few stories behind the scenes um, on other subjects. But, nah, I, I mean, I don't really have anything to throw out there right now. I mean, we covered – that was a good 20 minutes of Eddie Gallagher slash uh, problems within the ranks. Had, a, had Accountability, I think, is the main theme of, of this conversation. Yeah, because what happens is let's, – let's just say you have a soldier who does something wrong, who, who like – um, wants to like beat up a, de- a detainee, mm-hmm. and his leaders turn turn a blind eye to it, or or even worse, they authorize it. Like, yeah, go beat the shit out of that kid that's handcuffed. Um, then what happens? Like two, three deployments down the line, what that turns into is those soldiers that you let do that. Now they're just smoking civilians on target. Like women come out of the house with their hands up, kids, and you just smoke the whole family. Like that's what it turns into. So the, it, it starts, it has to start early on. Uh, and if you let those things slip by, they snowball and they get worse yeah, and worse. Yeah. I mean, so you got to nip it in the bud early, but again, it goes back to if, if you know, if, if your leader's not all there and he's allowing it, I mean, it all comes back to accountability. Like, Top to bottom. Because w- what you do, what the leaders are doing at that point is uh, they're, like, they're like grooming their subordinates, right? Yeah, and, and that's essentially. What, and that's what war crimes do. They, they actually do bind you together because now it's like a mafia. For like sure. You all have dirt on each other, mm-hmm. right? So by committing war crimes, it like strengthens your little clique in that way because er- everyone can dime out everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Oh, this whole thing's fucked. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Oh, let's bring on Jason. But before we... I'm, I'm flustered. That is... That's some heavy stuff, man. Before we bring on Jason, I want to let you guys know that this show is brought to you by Crate Club. It's a club for men by men of gear handpicked by special operations military veterans. Visit CrateClub.us for an exclusive promotion for our listeners of 20% off your subscription. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know how long we can keep this promotion going. So go to CrateClub.us and use the coupon code SOFREP and get 20% off any subscription. That's CrateClub.us, coupon code SOFREP, S-O-F-R-E-P, for 20% off. Sign up now. And with that, we're going to welcome on Jason Bailey, 25 years in the Army, 
uh, he's going to have a lot to talk about. So, Absolutely. So we're not going to waste your time any longer. Enjoy. Joining us now, we have Jason Bailey on. He spent 25 years in the Army, 17 of which, over 17, serving in top-tier special operations units. Quite an impressive resume. Uh, he was in the first battle of Mogadishu, which was portrayed in the book and then the movie Black Hawk Down. So we are very excited to have him on. Jason, thank you so much for giving us some time today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, we really appreciate having you. Yeah, Jason, I mean, you were highly recommended um, by, by numerous people, actually, after a, a friend of yours initially uh, said I needed to reach out to you. He said, he said you're the guy I, we need to have on the podcast. Uh, so I'm so happy that, um, that we could get in touch. Very cool. I am as well, and I I, um, I make it a habit of uh, you know passing out twenty dollar bills for my friends of mine to say cool things about me. So apparently that worked at least once. So Actually, Jason, I'm, I'm glad it, we're here. It was me. I'll send you the uh, I'll send you the address after the show. Twenty dollars. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess Jason. Um, I, I never know quite where to where to start off with uh, with people like yourself who spent so much time in and out of the military doing interesting things. Uh, I mean, maybe you could tell us, start off a little bit by talking about how you came into the military, how and why you joined the Army, and and how all that came about. The um, the long and short of it is, I, 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 uh, my family's from Minnesota originally. We moved out to Oregon. I grew up in Oregon. I'm a Pacific Northwest guy. Uh, grew up in Salem. When I graduated high school, I had uh, two jobs, one full-time and one evening thing. And uh, by the time I got through the summer and the following winter, by uh, January of, so I graduated in 83. By January of 84, I was unemployed, uh, got laid off from one job that was a seasonal thing, and the other one I got fired from. And um, long story short, I uh, um, got, I, I was spent my entire high school career with adults recommending to me that I should think about going in the military because I was kind of motivated and I, I worked pretty hard and I always just kind of waved that off with the brush of my hand. I'm not interested in that. It's not my thing. And then, uh, you know, nothing like the prospect of zero income to make you uh, reevaluate your priorities, I guess. And uh, so right about, uh, I don't know, right after my 19th birthday, I walked into the recruiter's office because I wanted to fly helicopters. And um, through a series of conversations, we, we, I ended up going into the infantry and uh, which actually was probably the best thing for me. And that ended up being a pretty good decision. Um, I don't think I would have been well suited to flying helicopters and, and I didn't have the right eyes for it anyway. I couldn't, I couldn't have passed the exam for that. So um, long story short, I, I got no, no mentoring or counseling from anybody smarter than me about going in the military. And so I ended up in a, uh, an infantry unit. I was in a, a mechanized unit over a station in Germany, which for your listeners who've spent time in the military, that's about the farthest thing as you can get from anything special operations or airborne or anything like that. And um, uh, that was 1984. I spent a couple years in Germany, got, got uh, managed to finagle my way into an airborne school slot when I left there somehow, graduated airborne school, and then wait, went straight to another non-airborne mechanized unit at Fort Knox, Kentucky, and in 1986, I don't think Fort Knox even had a parachute on the base anywhere. But, you know, I, <laughs> they looked at me like I had horns when I showed up coming from airborne school and, and reported in there. Um, 
then I through a through a couple of series of events I had a stroke of luck got a ranger school slot in the summer of 87 and then I came right up for uh, re-enlistment so I re-enlisted and um uh, the reenlistment guy told me I can't get you any options other than you can pick your duty station of choice. And I knew there was a ranger battalion up kind of close to my house in Oregon, up in Tacoma, Washington at Fort Lewis. So I said, I want to go to Fort Lewis. I got that written in my contract. I reenlisted for six years and, um, very, very condensed version of the story is, uh, a company commander, a captain that I worked for a couple of years prior to that had been stationed at second bat at one point and he mentored me through the process of calling and getting an appointment with the command sergeant major. Uh, and I walked in cold and did an interview of sorts. And, and they said, yeah, if you can get yourself assigned to uh, Fort Lewis, we'll put you on orders. And, you know, you still have to uh, pass the ranger orientation program. Back then they had rope for NCOs. That was kind of the understanding. It's like, Hey, we'll put you, we'll assign you to second ranger battalion, but you got to pass through all these, flaming hoops of uh, qualifications and everything else, which I managed to do. So, you know, I did that. So you, that's, you, that's, you, a, that's you an hour long yourself. story by itself. Go ahead. You, I was just saying you recruited yourself to Ranger Battalion, which is, uh, I've never heard that before of like a NCO to yeah. kind of like knock, knocking <laughs> well, on the CSM like store. <laughs> so this, uh, <clears throat> this captain I worked for, I ended up through a series of events. I ended up being a, you know, a driver for a vehicle for my company commander when I was in Germany and he had been a platoon leader in the Rangers up there in, the, in the, exactly the same battalion that I wanted to go to. So we, we spent a lot of time driving, you know, around Germany doing different training exercises. And he did a real good job mentoring me about stuff. And finally, he, you know, he said, hey, if you, if you really want to do this, here's what you need to do. And he called this phone number, talk to this person, make this appointment with the, with the CSM, blah, blah, blah. And I'm at this point, at this point, we're not working together anymore because he had moved and I had gone back to the States, but we were on the phone and, you know, and I, I, I said, sir, this is, I can't do this. He go, yeah, you can. You just call him and tell him what you want to do. It's like, I'm a, I'm a young E5. I can't just go and ask for an appointment <laughs> with the battalion command sergeant major. And he, and he said, this is, yes, it's out of the ordinary, but if you want it bad enough, this is what you have to do. Figure it out. And, uh, his name was, uh, Vic Jarrett. He was, a he was a awesome company commander. I haven't had contact with him for probably I don't know, 25 years and I need to contact him, but, um, you know, it was a one in a million thing. And I, and it, and it, um, I try to do as much mentoring nowadays as I can, which, which usually translates to me offering unsolicited advice to people who don't want to listen to it anyway. Cause it's like, <laughs> Hey, you know, get out of my face. I'm busy doing my, you know, my thing. <laughs> and, uh, um, I try not to be pushy about it, but, but the point is, is, you know, most people, and, and I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of making a, 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 a point way off, uh, off topic of what we're talking about. Um, a lot of people hear that, you know, you have this, this, uh, career in soft and you're, a, you know, you're a green beret or a army ranger or a Navy seal, or you're this or you're that. And they just assume that you were always that thing, but we all started out the same way. Yeah. So it, I think it's a good story to tell because a lot of people can can find some uh, similarities and go, hey, you know, I can I can do that for myself and go find this job and I, you know, do my own thing in the military, whatever that is. And I I try to tell young troops that I run across, regardless of service branch, you have to kind of make your own luck. Yeah. The, the army will take care of you to a point, but but they're also going to 
as one of my friends told me when I was getting ready to retire, they're going to get their pound of flesh. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so you got to make your own luck and let them get the pound of flesh while you're doing something that you want or that, or that you, or that satisfies your need for job satisfaction and, and challenging things and stuff like that. So you spent some time in second ranger battalion. Um, this was back in the late 1980s at this point. Yes. Yeah. I showed up there in 1988. Yep. Actually it was kind of funny um, uh, for, for, for folks who were around back then, you know, the, the, if you go back to Vietnam, the plain green OG 107 uniform that was a uh, you know Vietnam and a little bit later, well the uh, the army had in 1988 the army had already changed over to the first version of the woodland camouflage BDU like the old heavy cotton one with mm-hmm. the not the not the, the what I refer to as the newer one that came out like in the early 90s with a a narrower collar and the ripstop material and. Um, so when I walked in, just just incidentally, when I walked into the uh, talk to the CSM that day, you know, I was still the the Rangers were all in their OG 107s and, and jungle boots, the green green canvas jungle boots, and uh, and their black berets. And I walk in in my you know, I refer to it as I was all uh, super legged out, right, in my BDUs and the wide collar ones and my spitshine jump boots because that's what we did in Lakeland, you know, not non airborne unit. And I, I thought they were going to run me out of there on a rail and beat me up and throw me back over the fence. You know, all the, all the rumors you hear, but, but anyway, yeah, that was 88. I, I got there and then, uh, I left in 92, did just like not quite four and a half years, I guess. So how and, did, how did that, left there. how did that work out that you, you heard that there's this other outfit out there doing some cool missions or whatever, and, and you wanted to push it up to the next level? Yeah, pretty much. It was, it was, you know, I had, I had heard about that in the past and, it, and frankly, it was one of those things where I, I kind of looked like it was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not, that's not something I could ever do. Cause those, you know, that's just, that's beyond my capabilities. And I don't, I, I mean, I literally put it out of my mind. I went, I went to, uh, even back when I was a young PFC or, or spec, spec, uh, spec four back in like 1985, they came that organization came around and did a recruiting brief. And I went with one of my friends who was an NCO and they let me sit in the briefing. And I remember thinking to myself, this is pretty cool, but there's, there's no way I could do this. Cause there's just, I just, I just couldn't do it. Cause I just, I just dismissed it out of hand. Cause I, I knew it was so hard. It was something I would never be able to do. And then somehow or another years later, I conjured up the, the, the guts to give it a try. And lo and behold, it worked out. So I, I had to go a second time. I didn't make it my first attempt. Um, and I ended up waiting three years before I went back, which was, which was timing wise was kind of a mistake. I wish I hadn't done that, but it all worked out. So here we are. I'm trying not to be too short with my answers and I'm trying not to talk too much because no, I don't okay. know uh, when too much is too much. So no, it's all right. Um, I was, I was wondering if you, uh, because when we had talked on the phone previously, I mentioned some of the other previous guests we had um, that you recognized right off the bat, like George and Rob. I was wondering if you wanted to talk about right. some of some of those other guys at all. Yeah, you know, actually, I hadn't thought about that. I, I it's it's funny that uh, so many of the folks that you're talking about were contemporaries of mine. Probably the uh, you know first and foremost, and I, I guess you know the fame and notoriety or or infamy, whichever way you want to say it. I'm not sure, but you know, I was in the I was in the same training class as Kyle Lamb um, and Pat McNamara both and, uh, and George Hand. You mentioned his name as well. 
uh, we, we all went to the same training course at the same time. I ended up in the same squadron as Kyle for quite a few years. We were actually on the same team for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years, whatever that was. And I really, really enjoyed working with him. Um, he was a team leader and I was the assistant team leader there. And, um, you know, the, the, the thing about, um, and I just had this repeated back to me the other day. So I'm repeating something that somebody else said to me years ago, but you know, you, you show up to a place like that. And, and I was never a guy that, that, um, early in my career kind of looked around and was like, you know, I'm, I'm a better performer than all these people. Cause I, I just don't look at things like that, but you do start to notice that you're even as a young man in the army, you know, when I was in, I mean, I showed up at that, that first duty station in Germany and within six months, I was kind of like, um, this is it. This is all this is. I mean, there's not, I thought we were going to be, you know, running around and machine gunning and, you know, just learning how to, you know, and, and it put should, the pedal it should, to the metal also and, be, and, and it just never happened. It should also be pointed out. I mean, the army in Germany during that time frame you got there in the, the, you know, early to mid eighties, the army was not in good shape at that point. Good point. Good point. You're, you're right. And, and, um, you know, the, uh, I got there in 1984, June of 1984 or something like that. And I left in December of 86. So just right at two and a half years. And, um, I will, I will, t- the thing that you say is true. They were, they were, you know, lacking funding, lacking decent equipment. We had, uh, probably most everything we used was, uh, Vietnam era stuff, not literally stuff from Vietnam that was, you know, 15 years old, but, Vietnam era things that had not been redesigned or updated or that, you know, that's just that the technologies were, were somewhat stagnant. Um, you know, this was before the Humvee, this was before the Bradley or the Bradley was actually just coming out. Then the Beretta pistol had just been introduced. We still had 1911s in my company, you know, cause the, you know, the order of fielding stuff like that, it goes to, you know, the special ops guys first, and then it'll filter down to like the 82nd and the 101st. And the the 8th Infantry Division, where I was, was pretty damn close to the last of the list, it seems to me, you know, from my perspective at the time. But I will tell you that, um, you know, here we are 30, 35 years later, and my perspective is that even though that place was, uh, that division, which 8th Infantry Division got deactivated sometime in the 90s, I believe, and, uh, um, even though they were, you know, resource constrained and it was in Germany and it was the cold war and there was, you know, just all of that stuff. Um, the thing I remember back to is, uh, in, in, in some cases, Jack, in, in stark contrast to what I, we see today is, uh, those young E5 and E6 sergeants and staff sergeants, mid-grade NCOs, the army was actually pretty good in a lot of cases, uh, taking care of their guys and, you know, and, and doing what they were supposed to do. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't done at the elite soft level of execution, but I mean, I had, you know, what I would call, um, marginally educated sergeants and staff sergeants in my company that I didn't, frankly, I didn't hold in high regard just cause I, I just didn't, they just didn't seem to me like they were motivated and they weren't the hard charging people like I thought army guys should be. But now that I'm a little more seasoned and I've had a, a, a broad look at a lot of stuff in the military, a lot of different flavors of special forces and or, or special operations forces, I should say. Um, 
a lot of those guys were really good at just basic sergeant tasks, like making sure your people are taken care of, making sure they go to the promotion board where they're supposed to, making sure that they do what they're, you know, just basic stuff. You know, do a 12-mile road march and there's actually water at the end of it. You know, my I have two kids in the Army now, um, both at just over five, about five and a half years of service. And some of the stories they tell me about some of the things they do in the units that they're in, and they're and they're both in, you know, non-special ops units. And I it, it just curls my hair. I said, what do you mean you did a 12-mile road march and, you, you know, you get to the halfway turnaround point and there's no water? He said, yeah, we, you know, walking for hour and a half, two hours in, 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 you know, 95 degree heat in the summertime. And nobody thought to put water. It's like, how can anybody, anybody even get by with that? It's like, we forgot how to train. Right. Right. It's we're, we're so concentrated on being so high speed with all of our cool little widgets and, you know, all this, all this, all this cool guy stuff. And I don't mean to denigrate that, but you know, people get so focused on, on uh, having, I don't know what's having the, beards the, and having just, lasers on their guns and all this stuff. Right. I got to have a 10 inch barrel gun and, and I got to have a, this, this and that and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, you, you can't even score 250 on your PT test for crying out loud. Why are you focusing on this? It's, you, you know, there, there's a, I could rant and rave about this and I'm going to try not to flip that switch to on. Cause I don't think it's going to be the <laughs> most productive conversation. But I, my, my point is, is that even the people who a lot of us look at as like, not even a lower tier, but at the bottom tier, the bottom rung of the of the ladder of hierarchy of of perception of uh, you know how great we are in the military. There's a lot of guys out there who are just you know run of the mill guys that are doing the right thing day in and day out, and they're 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 doing great work. Uh, I think that's a really important unheralded point. and unrecognized, and that's where all of us come from. I think that. Yeah, that, I mean that's the base that builds the the soldier who's able to you know one day go and do all those high speed things, and you know I think there are some there are some dev- valid reasons for you know take for like like the Ranger Regiment is the perfect example the spit and polish um, image and and how regimented it is and some of that stuff I understand why it needed to fall by the wayside when you're a, a wartime army, but as you say I think sometimes the baby got thrown out with the bathwater and some of like that basic soldier discipline, um, you know, basic good army training, that kind of stuff just kind of fell by the wayside as well. Right. I agree. I agree that about five years ago, I was at the, uh, the AUSA show up in DC. I don't know if you've ever been to that. It's usually in October. No, the no. association of the U S army has a conference and it's like a, it's like a trade show. It's everything from, you know, a lot of military leaders goes right in downtown DC and, um, at a convention center down there. And, um, anyway, the Sergeant major of the army at the time who was, uh, I'm looking right at his face. I can't think of his name, but he had a, he had a, a question and answer thing. They did a couple presentations and then did this question and answer thing in this, I don't know, 300 people in this auditorium. And uh, the company I worked for at the time, got an invite and we were, we were kind of there helping out a little bit. And, um, the, the reason I bring this up is because during the question and answer thing, probably no fewer than five or six first sergeants or sergeants major in the crowd stood up and, you know, got an opportunity to ask a question of the SMA and they got the mic in their hand and they all basically said the same thing, which was, you know, none of my troops 
uh, I, I can't motivate any of my troops to do, you know, proper garrison type stuff. And we've lost our ability. And to, to, I mean, they, some of them even literally complained about the fact that we have brown boots now instead of black and nobody has to polish them anymore. And the lack of soldierly skills and all this other stuff. And, and, um, which I understood their point, but I was kind of aghast at the, at the, the collective at the attitude in the aggregate of a lot of mm-hmm. these guys in the crowd and the, all the guys that worked at the company I was at at the time were all vets. And we had a long discussion about this after the fact. And I, and I, it wasn't my place. And I was, uh, uh, not because of what we were doing. We were actually the guys kind of like carrying the microphones around back and forth. So it was inappropriate for me to grab a mic and say something. But the thing I wanted to stand up and, and tell these guys is like, look, Sergeant major first sergeant, Yes, what you're saying is somewhat true, but what you're not acknowledging in your in your complaint is the fact that we had, as an army, it, pre-9-11, we had almost zero uh, uh, ability to conduct combat operations at the level that we conduct them now, which would have been in, like, 2013 when this happened. You know, at least acknowledge the fact that we've we might have lost some of these non-essential soldierly skills. I'm going to call them non-essential because I don't really give... I don't, I don't give any concern at all about shining boots, shining boots or belt buckles or haircuts or uniformity. You know, they these guys get to wear their pouches, however they want to on their uniform. And da, 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 da. It's like, why do you even care about that? How yeah. did, how did we make you a first sergeant or a sergeant major while you care so much about that? What's wrong with the army that that's even, that that even happened? Cause we, we need, you to should be, be an E six. We need to be talking about marksmanship. We need to be talking about tactics, right. you know, some of those, right. those basic soldier tasks. Like if you need some soldier tasks, tasks to fixate on, let's, let's pull out the mission essential task list and just start going down and right. see what we're proficient on. Right. Exactly. You know, and that's, and that's, it's, that's exactly my point, you know? And so while he has a good point, it frustrated me a little bit because he, 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 you know, forgot the forest for the trees. His focus is so, so, and I think the Sergeant Major of the Army was able to address those kind of misguided and ill-focused senior NCOs in the crowd. And he, he gave a pretty good answer, which was basically more diplomatic than what I just said. It's like, Hey, we're doing great job at combat operations. And, you know, some of this stuff might get lost, but all those things are just varying degrees of attention to detail. Mm -hmm. So if your guys can't shine their boots and their belt buckles aren't black or their haircuts are too long, or they got a three day growth of facial hair, but they remember to do all their pre-combat inspections and their vehicle runs when they need to go out the gate and go conduct a mission and, you know, they're doing all those proper things and da 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 da. And we could, you and I could sit here and come up with a list of about 300 items that probably have to get checked every single time before guys roll out the gate. All that stuff is getting done. I, I, I really don't care about boots and, you know, I mean, it, it just doesn't matter. Um, there was another point I was going to make about 10 minutes ago when we, we've well, gone far afield I mean, and I already I, forgot I think, what it was. But. I, I think part of it was you're talking about how, um, you you didn't find the conventional military to be all that you hoped for. Um, By the time you got to OTC though, and you're alongside, you know, super studs like Kyle Lamb and Pat McNamara. I mean, I I take it you found what you were looking for there. I did. And thank you for the reminder because you just reminded that that's exactly the point I was going to make, which was, you know, I I didn't, I never looked at myself. I, I recognized when I got a little bit older, you know, hit my mid twenties or so. I've been in the army for five or six years. I recognized that I was, 
a little bit more motivated and had a little bit better work ethic than most guys. Um, and I had a natural ability cause I was like, you know, six foot tall and 150 pounds when I enlisted in the army, I could run like the wind until, until I was 40. Um, you know, but that was, that was kind of the end of it. So when, when you, when you leave other places and I got to the Rangers and I was, you know, I, I wasn't a top performer there necessarily. Um, you know, but when I, when I went through selection and got to a special mission unit, tier one level type of stuff, it's like every single day you show up for work and walk through the door, you've got to have your, the pedal to the metal and you, you're, you're, you're working to keep up, you know? So some guys might be a better shooter and they may have to work more to keep up on the physical side, or maybe other guys are, are better at planning and they may have to work harder to be a better shooter and keep up with the better shooters. And everybody brings something to the table, but you know, it's like you go through this extensive selection and, and hiring process only for the privilege of working your ass off every day you're there for however many years that is. And a lot of people don't understand that. It's like, Oh, I've, I, if I, once I get through, I, through that and all those, all those different, uh, uh, hiring process, you know, everything else. Now I can, I can rest on my laurels and I can take it easy because I've made it. It's like, no, you, you now have to work harder to keep up, uh, than you've ever worked in your life. And you've got to do that pretty much every day until you leave there I, I kind for of, the most part. I, I kind of had that problem, um, and not with everyone, but with some people in special forces, um, that there were certain people who I felt like they got their long tab and they put on their green hat and they kind of felt like that's it. I've made the same observation. It's interesting that you say that. I agree. And I think, I think, um, I mean, there's there human nature is, is what it is. And, and no matter how hard we try. And I mean, I ain't gonna lie to you. We had a couple of those that slipped through the cracks. Sure. You know, we, we just have, we just have tighter cracks and fewer people slip through them, <laughs> but there's, there's always a couple here and there, you know? Hell, probably some people are going to listen to this. They're like, yeah, Beefly, you're one of them, you know. Um, but the, 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 it's we have fewer of them, and then SF and Rangers have fewer of them than the big Army has, and it just, you know, it's kind of this stair-step it, it, descending order. Um, but you, but it's, I, I don't, I actually had to take some, um, I, I, I did a different, I do a lot of different uh, consulting work and, and different kinds of training and stuff like that. Now, I don't, I don't have a, I don't work for a company full time as a as an employee. I do all uh, contracting work now, mostly instruction and some other stuff that's some you know consulting and things like that. And in the last couple of years, I've had the opportunity to uh, to do some, you know, normally what I do is flat range marksmanship and tactic stuff. And I had an opportunity to do a couple of things where it was just um, you know some soft guys and a lot of training, and I got to provide some feedback on some stuff they were doing. And, and there were some, and I'm not going to say who it was. I'm not going to say which branch of service it was. It was cause I don't want to, I don't want to call anybody out and, and start a big argument, but I, in the, it, across the force that, that group of guys in that place at that time, you know, um, there was some, some of this attitude, like you're talking about, it's kind of like, you know, and I look at it purely as a work ethic. If you're going to show up and call yourself, you know, a Navy SEAL, Green Beret, Ranger, whatever, right? Tier one operator, badass, barrel chested freedom fighter. And you're not willing to, you know, help one of your mates carry the boxes of MREs in from out in the truck that you all have to pass out to put in as emergency rations in your vehicle. Or 
you're not willing to, you know, help your medic carry all of his extra stuff off of, uh, the infill aircraft after you finish your training exercise. Cause you know, we did a big, uh, casualty play, right? Everybody gets off the aircraft and walks away and leaves the medic there with this big pile of crap. And you know what it looks like when you do casualty play. And then you, then you end the exercise and the casualty stands up and takes all that stuff off. You have this, this pile of crap <laughs> and everybody walked away and left the medic there by himself. So I, I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll give him a hand. And then one of the guys came running back and, you know, sort of hit, checked me out of the way. But I was, I'm looking at this. I'm like, what is wrong with all of you in your work ethic that you think it's okay to leave your medic to just go do this by himself? It doesn't make any sense. So, and then there was, I've just, I've seen these multiple uh, uh, disparate organizations that all have uh, a similar, what I'm going to call a similar cultural problem, which is, like you said, they, they think they've arrived and all they got to do is put on whatever special badge or insignia that they have and walk around and look cool. And they don't get the, the other, the flip side of that is you have to work your ass off to maintain that. Do you think part and, of that and is, and it's hard. Do you think part of that is that the force is just, uh, I've, I was talking about this with Dennis before we went on, on, uh, and gave you a call. I mean, do you think some of these problems, some of these cultural problems have something to do with us having been at war for 18 years and that the force has become kind of frayed at the, at the edges? There's probably something to do with that. I think, I think there's a few people out there who, who, uh, more than a few, there's probably a good, a good number of people out there who think that if it's not combat operations, they don't have time for it. And I can sympathize to a point. I, I, I can, but you know, at the same time, only to a point, and then and then my point is not nearly as far down the path as as other people's point would be. And I would say hey, I'll compromise to right here, and they would want to go, you know, fifty feet farther down that path. And at which point I would I would say no, not not even close. And we're going to go do, so, you know, it goes back to the comment I made before about you know the supposedly bottom rung of the ladder eighth ID guys in mechanized back in the eighties in Germany, you know, which a lot of people would look at as the stereotypical like highest drag, lowest speed thing you could do with the, the rum, the rum and Coke some, in the back of their, uh, uh, in the back of the Bradley. Yeah. I mean, we, we used to refer to a long distance movement in our vehicles. Like we're going to go and drive overnight, 50, 60 miles in the mechanized. This is before, before the 11 hotel MLS even existed. This was, they, they called it, we're going to do a road march. <laughs> I thought a road march was with your with your feet and a rucksack on your back. You know, we had a we we had this guy come from the 82nd one time. He he changed stations, left the 82nd, and ended up in my company in the in the same company I was in over in Germany in the 8th ID. And uh, I thought, you know, after we became friends, after he'd been there for a few months, and he's a really a good guy. And uh, he goes, "Yeah, I came here from the 82nd, and you guys kept talking about road march, road march, road march." So we. We we got in the vehicles and I had my rucksack on ready to go and then we just drove for eight hours. <laughs> I was like, what kind of road march is this? You know. <laughs> but but anyway, the the, the uh, and I think your the answer to the question is um, part of it is frayed at the edges because there's been a lot of combat operations and people think that anything that's not you know being shot at by the enemy, not not engaging the enemy, shoot, move, communicate, you know, in a kinetic fashion. Uh, they think is beneath them, and that that's a that's an easy temptation to succumb to, but I I think it's inaccurate, and I and I I don't think the the 
the exact and equal opposite of that is is that when we're not doing that, we should all be wearing our our uh, tin soldier uniforms and walking out on the parade field practicing our marching around. Or we should be going to, you know, uh, all these silly briefings that the Army has to go to now, you know, um, there's a there's a happy medium mm-hmm. between spit and polish and rolling in the mud combat operations with you know the proverbial I'm I'm knee deep in brass and grenade pins stories right um, and there's a happy medium there somewhere and it's hard to reach that uh, in a lot of places for for most organizations culturally they don't have the they don't the, the culture is not deep enough in the army because too many people rotate around too quickly yeah. everybody only does a couple years and then they're gone. And so there's no, there's no way to keep the culture there. And the, 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 the units like say the 82nd airborne, for example, that have a, a pretty storied history all the way back to world war one. Um, what I find there, especially since I've been, I've been at or near Fort Bragg for 20, almost 25 years now is, um, no, 27 years now is that, uh, I think that, um, a lot of those guys are guilty of, um, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? I can't, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not, they're, they're co-opting their history and, and they're inadvertently, I don't think they even realize it, but they're resting on their laurels because they're the badass 82nd, but they can't go out and conduct decent training because they don't ever train right. Cause they're, cause they're the 82nd. They're just going to, they're just going to 82nd their way through it and it'll be fine. I think that's a big problem, um, with a lot of these units. Uh, I, I think it is. It, it's, it's bigger than anybody's willing to admit, and I'm sure there's 20 or 30 people out there that are going to listen to this from the 82nd and call me a, you know, a blasphemer. And I'm sure I'm going to hear it from a bunch of other people as well. But you know, there's I, I don't I don't. It's not it's not a non problem. It, it's it's there, and uh, it's a human nature problem. I think the Army's had this problem for for decades or hundreds of years, and it ebbs and flows just like anything else. Um. It just is what it is. Not, not, that doesn't mean I'm willing to accept it. We, we do need to fix it. But, you know, the, the, the other thing that, that you and I talked about, and maybe, maybe, maybe not, uh, this is a, seg- a good segue into this, is um, that same job I worked at back when uh, I was mentioning the thing about the Star Major of the Army. Um, back in, I think, about 2011 or 12, the chief of staff of the Army at the time, I don't remember who that was. I should I should have looked that up and had it here so I could say what it was when we talked. But um, for whatever reason, he he had his staff go and do the research, and he said, "Hey, we we've been doing pretty much nonstop combat operations now for ten years, and uh, let's go and see, how, you know, how's the force doing? What, what do things look like on the ground? Not from the perspective of how well we do combat operations. I want you to look at everything else. And this is this is me regurgitating this, so. I'm, I might be off a little bit, but the, the spirit of what I'm saying is accurate. And so they did, and they came back after, I don't know, maybe a year of, of, of assessment. And this was, this was not a thing just, just for your edification, Jack, or maybe, or maybe for your listeners. This was not a thing where they went out and did like the, you know, the, the uh, Army sensing sessions where you fill out a form and, you know, and, and, and a commander does a little survey. This was a, more of a, uh, of a formal thing. Uh, and they put some meat behind it and actually interviewed people and, and, and came up with some pretty good conclusions. And the, 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 the way I understand it, they, they kind of came back and said, Hey, there's a, there's a, 
a cultural issue, perhaps, in that <clears throat> uh, the Army, individuals in the Army don't exactly recognize that they are a, uh, a professional within the profession of arms. The, the officer corps has kind of got it a little bit because they just, it, that dates them all the way back to probably revolu- pre-revolutionary times when, and, and civil war times when the, you know, you, when you were a wealthy landowner and you had the means to do it, you could, hell, it probably dates its way all the way back to the Romans. You could put together an army because you had the money to buy one and all the equipment. And that's just sort of translated itself culturally over to the officer corps over all the years. But on the enlisted side of things, there was this lacking, you know, bona fide thing of I'm a professional within the profession of arms. And, and so they, the army reported this back to the chief of staff and then they, they established a couple of things and they started trying to chip away at this a little bit and talked about a, a bunch of different things regarding what it's, what, what does it mean to be, you know, a professional within a profession? And then the, the examples are throughout history that this, the, the, there's, there's essentially three examples. And in, in the way I understand this, it's a, it's a, uh, a thing or, or, a a, a, a a cultural identity or a service within in a culture in a society that a society didn't have it wouldn't be able to provide for itself and the and the three generally are um the law medicine and um religion and then modern history we we sort of added in the the military service as as the fourth one and and part of the definition of that is you know uh, uh, a profession is something that's kind of self-contained. They train their own, they manage their own, they discipline their own. You know, so for example, if you, you know, lawyers go to a law school, have to pass a bar exam, if they are found uh, doing egregious enough things, they, they lose their law license, they're, they're disbarred, you know, doctors are the same way. Um, you know, you have to go to law school, you have to go to medical school, you have to go to seminary to become a uh, a religious leader, you know, in the same way. So, so society doesn't do that. You can't go to, uh, you know, just, you can't just go anywhere and become a doctor. They've, they've created their own profession. Um, and they've, and they established their own standards. They train their own, they discipline their own. So you, you know, my, my version of that for the military is you, you can't make a, you know, a tank gunner at any university in the army, in the, in the, in the United States, anywhere on the planet, you can't make a jump master, at a university, you can't make a the guy who runs the the engines in a navy ship anywhere else other than in the navy or in the army or in the air force or whatever that looks like. One of the things that I, um, I observed over the years is that you know special operations itself has come a long way. I think um, it, it it is a profession now. I think. Um, whether or not it's dwindling is, is another controversial question um, to tackle. But I, I think one of the big things that we need to work on um, as a country or as the military is professionalizing the infantry. Uh, I, I really feel like it still works within the sort of like World War II construct, um, like when we had draftees. Like they, 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 it almost behaves the same way in many regards. And I, I really think they should professionalize it to like, no, this is like a profession. It's a way of life. There, there is a career track, but I, I don't know. I just feel like they need to do more to kind of raise the standards there. Um, I would agree with you. The, uh, 
and, and, and my mind reels with the possibilities of how we could do that and what would be a good idea and what would be a bad idea. Um, I think that, I think that you're onto something there and I agree with you. And I, I do think that it's a, it's still built on a foundation of, uh, you know, world war two type of thing. Um, there's a couple of, a couple of things that I've, um, run across recently that makes me, I'm going to go on on a limb here, but it kind of makes me think that perhaps the technology that we're getting ready to exploit in, you know, in, in 2019, 20, 25, whatever, um, as we move forward here, some of the technologies that are going to be available to, um, you know, your standard infantrymen at the individual or at the battalion or brigade level or whatever, it's going to, it's going to force us to move that profession into, you know, we're going to make a quantum leap from, from early 20th century world. Cause really world war two tactics were, you know, adapted to apply to the Pacific and the, and the European theaters based off of, uh, you know, uh, marching formations, which date back to world war one. And even before that, and they, they just, you know, we're, we're still, we're still doing that kind of thing. And the, we've been talking about asymmetric warfare now for 10, 15 years since, mm-hmm. since nine 11. But now that we've got all manner of different drones capabilities, we've got, you know, cyber warfare, which is so complicated. I can only barely spell cyber. Um, and, and, and all these other different sensors that we can do sensors to sense other sensors and all this other stuff. And I think your average, your average guy to be able to exploit this and make it work in real time um, in another 10 or 15 years is going to be, I think we're going to be forced through sheer inertia to improve on that template. Like you're saying. Yeah. I mean, is the, the future infantrymen going to be like something out of a, a science fiction novel. Um, I mean, it's a little fantastical right now, but not as fantastical as it was 10 years ago. <laughs> No, no, not at all. And, 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 uh, uh, I, you know, I don't know the SOCOM project on the whole Iron Man suit. You know, I don't know if you've ever, yeah. I'm not a big, uh, sci-fi guy, but I have read, uh, Robert Heinlein's book called oh, Starship yeah. Troopers. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if you're a fan of that. And I would yeah. encourage anybody who hears this to read that book. Not, not that cheesy movie that came out 15, 20 years ago called Starship Troopers, but the actual book. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fascinating, especially since he wrote it in like 1958. Um, he, he talked about technology that we still haven't been able to figure out. And, uh, it's fascinating the capability there. Um, but I, I think you're, I think you're right. And I think, I think the, uh, the, the infantry profession is going to need a bit of updating. And then, uh, you, you alluded to, uh, to soft, um, you know, and I, there's a, the, there's a problem in soft, which is a, a perception problem that's, that I think is always going to be there because it's soft. You know, you have a, you have a lot of young guys who look at something, you know, these recruiting things for Rangers and green berets and Navy seals and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, so they, they want to be that thing because it sets them apart and it, and it's cool and it's elite. And then they, they go through their training and they get to that point. And, uh, some of them recognize that they're, that they're, they basically just, they went through all the training to get permission to work harder than they've ever worked. Some of them just want to be, you know, they just want to be that guy and they don't understand what it looks like to, to gather together the resources, do the planning and put all that stuff together on the ground to actually conduct training properly. 
And that's, that's a thing that um, a lot of soft does uh, better than the big army in some cases because they, you know, they're only conducting training maybe for maybe part of it, maybe because they're conducting training for smaller numbers of people and part of it, maybe because they're um, doing it differently. I don't know. Um, but it's a, it's a, th- that's a cultural problem in my opinion, where the, the perception is, you know, I want to go be this guy cause it's cool and it's going to set me apart and not everybody can do it. Um, but at the same time, there's a, there's a, I don't know. I, I, the, the way I normally say this is, uh, th- there needs to be some adult supervision there to keep, to keep the focus correct. You know what I mean? Um, and that just doesn't happen a lot of times, just, just for whatever reason. And, and we'd have to break that down, you know, case by case, different things to, to be able to figure that out. But, um, there's a lot to be said there, and I don't, I don't know that we have time on, just in one call for that. Uh, I mean, uh, on, on that note, we did kind of start off this podcast before we, we rang you up. We, we were updating some of the things that were ongoing in the Eddie Gallagher oh. trial, um, the court-martial going on in San Diego right now. And, I mean, I, his, his guilt or innocence remains to be determined. But, I mean, do, do you think that there really is uh, like a serious ethical problem happening in special operations right now that we, we're kind of taking a, a turn down a dark path? That's a good question. Um, I, I will say that uh, I, I am not tracking that case at all. I think I, w- I, think I read one article that somebody, uh, somebody forwarded me something, I don't know, maybe three weeks or a month ago. And, and obviously it had been ongoing up to that point. It's just not anything I pay attention to. Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't asking specifically uh, about but, that case, but more. No, 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 I, I, absolutely. I, and, and, and I get that, but, but, uh, um, the bigger question is, uh, you know, that you, that you ask. So, so I don't know. Um, what I can tell you is that, um, along with that perception I mentioned a minute ago, and, 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 and I hear this, the, the perception that people have of soft, is that we get to the higher up the food chain you are in soft, the less you have to follow the rules. That's what people's perception is. Okay. So I spent 17 years as a tier one operator and I do training now and I do a lot of consulting and I talk to, I talk to a, a broad swath of people. I see a lot of military soft guys from all, all the branches. I talk to a lot of cops, you know, County Sheriff, city PDs, highway patrol, federal officers, and I cannot tell you, Jack, how many times I have had people in a class of mine or at a, at a you know, question and answer thing that maybe I'm, I'm, I'm talking uh, to a group of people and people's perception is that, you know, well, you, you guys behind the fence, you can just do whatever you want. You guys got all this money and you don't have to follow the rules and blah, 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 blah. People actually believe this. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of years in that, in that organization and I, uh, I, I got to learn, uh, more than I ever thought I would know about some of the things that have to do with, um, getting permissions and buying equipment and spending money to procure high end items. And what I tell people that they're totally unaware of is that not only do we not act the way you think we do. We don't run around the rules and just run roughshod over regulations, but the exact opposite is true. We have more oversight than anybody else in Department of Defense. And I can, I mean, that's a, that's a provable statement, right? And nobody wants to believe that. It's like, look, when you're, when you're out at the very, very pointy end of the tip of the spear, you know, people don't just 
throw that spear in any direction they want to and then forget about it because the stuff they ask you to do is important and it has, you know, international incident ramifications if it goes wrong tied all around it. So they don't, they don't just go, Hey, go send a couple guys over there and rampage through that country and let me know what happens. And just, you know, whenever it's destroyed, let me know. That's what people think. And that's not how it works at all. And it, it doesn't work like that from the perspective of, you know, we're going to send guys into combat or from the perspective of we're going to go buy new body armor, or we're going to buy new vehicles, or we're going to buy new NBGs. There's multiple layers of approval Right, multiple stars on people's collars. General officers have to approve at multiple different levels for all this stuff to happen on any given day or any given week. And so, having said that, to go back and answer your question, now that I've kind of set that stage a little bit, that the perception is that soft guys get to do what they want. And so, when when a special ops person gets accused of something, um. I kind of think that they're 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 found guilty in the court of public opinion right off the bat because it's like oh well he's a blank fill in the fill in the blank of soft those guys never follow the rules of course he did that of course he did this he did and I'm not I'm not exonerating or or trying to say that this guy is or is not guilty because I don't know enough about that case I I don't know I have no idea all I'm saying is that that uh, you know just like with a lot of these uh, police shootings where people get all upset about what happens before they look at the evidence, mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of the same thing here. We got to, you got to let the, uh, you got to let the court case run its case, run its, run its course and let things, you know, happen. And, and is justice going to be done? I, I guess it's just like any other court of law. There's, there's, uh, there's, uh, stuff falls through the cracks. You know, that's, uh, I think that's a really good point you bring up because there, there definitely is a, a part of the population that thinks like special operations guys are just a bunch of renegades. Like there's that article me and Dennis were talking about a few weeks back, how, you know, soft guys grow beards because we're renegades and we don't follow the rules and all this kind of, it was, it was kind of, it was a really silly article. But then the flip side to that is also that I notice a lot of people, some of them are veterans, a lot of them are civilians have this strange idea that there's nothing wrong with executing civilians overseas or that it's okay to commit war crimes that, you know, once you go, once you go to war, any sort of behavior becomes acceptable. Yeah. Um, so a couple, that's a good point. And, and, and you're right. I think that is the generally, the general perception across the population. I think that's mostly true. What you just said, I I don't think it's accurate. I think it's an accurate portrayal of what people's perception is. I don't think it's correct, and I and I disagree with, you know, we we don't we don't get to just go murder civilians because you know because we've spent the time in our minds dehumanizing them so it's easier for us individually to pull the trigger. That doesn't mean that they all deserve to die, and we should con- that, that we should you know commit genocide, which is an extreme version of the point that you're making, but. And I made a little bit of a leap in logic there to say that, but you're exactly right. A um, couple things that come to mind, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to make a circuitous point here. So when we first went to Afghanistan early on, everybody started growing a beard. And, and the reason was because we knew that the perception on the Afghan side of it is if you're an adult male and you don't have a beard, you're not manly and you have no credibility. And case in point, 
we had a guy in my organization who, for whatever reason, just couldn't really grow a beard. He, he, he tried to, and it just, it, it just, his genetic pool does not allow for, <laughs> you know, all kinds of other manliness, but not, but not, not facial hair. So he's talking to this guy. He told me this story after the fact he's talking to this, I don't know, they, they were somewhere in this village and talking through a turp and, and trying to get some information. And they end up talking to this teenage boy, maybe 14, 16, 18 years old. And they said something about this and the, the topic turned to hunting and, you know, he said his, his father had killed a bear or something like that up hunting. And, and the guy was standing there, my buddy, he goes, you know, I, I killed a bear uh, when I was hunting last year. And they were, you know, trying to make common cause with the guy or whatever and befriend him. And, and this kid looked at him, looked at the turp and said something. And he goes, that guy couldn't kill a bear. He, he couldn't kill a bear. He doesn't even have a beard. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and that's, so, so, so that's a, that's a, a, you know, you and I know that because we've lived it, but, but a lot of people don't, you're right. They, they look at it and go, well, the, you know, these guys don't need to have beards. And, and, and I think that the, the facial hair in the military has probably been a little bit overdone perhaps in the last <laughs> yeah, a bit. 18 years. But, but at the same time, you know, if you're going to that part of the world um, and you don't have facial hair, you're looked at as an unserious, unmanly man who cannot possibly do what you, I mean, that's not a culture like we have in the United States over there. It's just not. People don't want to believe that. You know, we live in this, uh, in this day and age in the United States where I can say any outlandish thing I want, call, you know, call red, black and call orange, white. Just because I say it's true, it has to be. And the rest of the world doesn't work that way. Certainly not. In, in, in some of the countries that we've been dealing with all these years. And um, anyway, I got off on a tangent there. I'm sorry, but the, the um, I just, I, I think it's, some of it's been a little bit overdone. And I think people's perception is, um, you know, just like people's perception with anything else, you can, you can dig into anything and uh, nothing is as, is as it appears on TV or in pictures or in magazines or in newspapers. It's never hundred percent accurate no matter what it is. Yeah, it's definitely a nuanced conversation and a, and a nuanced issue, to be sure. I agree. Um, I sort of lost track of what we were talking about there. I'm sorry. Uh, well, but, we, we uh, started talking off, uh, uh, just talking about ethical issues and, and special operations, and, and if we've kind of gone down a dark path, and I was mentioning how, I, I mean, maybe this is a, a, a poor perception on my part. I, I just noticed this in, mostly in like internet comments and things that people write that, there's a certain segment of the public that is actually supportive of war crimes at this point. And, and they seem like very enthusiastic about it. Like, yeah, we, we should kill the women and children. <laughs> like, why not? And it's just kind of, maybe it's just, I, I, I make too much of a thing out of it because it's just a stupid thing that people say on the internet without really understanding the implications. And, and they're people who have never been maybe. in that situation. Um, so maybe I shouldn't put it, uh, any weight on that. It's just, uh, I, I just see that kind of stuff and it's kind of disturbing. I think. I don't disagree with you. And I, and I, I wonder if, um, sometimes when I see those comments like that, and I'm one of these, I'm one of these, um, strange people that when I read articles online, if there's a comment section, I will scroll down through and oh, read you're a, crazy a good man. bit of the comment. You're a crazy man, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I don't, not, not a lot of people do that. Right. And, and I don't, 
I don't make comments at all. I just, I just, I just kind of lurk in the background, but I, it's interesting to see what people are thinking and, and you kind of have to, yeah, you kind of have to keep scrolling down the page and filter out all of the conspiracy brothers and you have to filter out all the crazies and filter out all the racists and everybody else. And there's some kernels of truth in there every once in a while. Um, but the, the, I wonder sometimes if some of that hasn't, when I say some of that, 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 and that sentence is, I wonder if some of those comments and people's willingness to say things on the internet, I just wonder sometimes if it isn't due to this, um, increasing stress in our society today over the dissension between the far left and the far right politically. And, and, you know, that's a whole nother two, three hour long discussion that we could all have over some adult beverages someday. Um, because, there's there, there's a stress in our society, in our culture that didn't exist when I first went in the army. Didn't exist when I grew up back in the '70s and '80s. Um, that, but it's there now, and it's and it's very acute, I think. And I just think that we, we we are we are trying to adapt to uh, something too quickly in our country that our our political and uh, are policymakers, if you want to put it that way, and 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 uh, the driving force behind whatever leads our country, whichever direction we go. I just think they're they're trying to. Uh, perhaps people think that that uh, too many people in the United States. I'll put it this way: think that somebody else besides them is trying to force them to do something they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And I think the comments uh, reflect that. I, I wasn't even you know, gonna, my, I wasn't even going to take it there, but I, I think you're right that it is related to like the the, the bigger picture national politics and, and the overall tribalism that everyone's kind of taking sides. There's a lot of stress. Yeah, you know, it, my my friend, I have a really good friend who's an engineer. He's a I know a lot of engineers, and I've met a lot of engineers over the last fifteen twenty years, and he's he's brilliant and um, PhD engineer who also can like turn wrenches and fix his own tractors and trucks and cars. He does all of his own maintenance on all of his own equipment. And he's a, you know, this insane mad scientist. And he made a comment to me one time, we were talking about, uh, electrical circuits and like theoretically what happens with EMP pulses and all this other stuff. It was, it was a, 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 an abstract conversation about some stuff, but he made this comment to me and he said, he goes, organisms don't like change. And they especially don't like change at a fast rate. And so, and we were talking, he's a, he's a huge uh, electrical electronics guy. And we were talking about like circuit breakers and what happens uh, with electrical circuits in general and circuit boards and just all this different stuff. And, you know, that's why he was explaining it to it to me in knuckle dragger terms. You know, when you introduce something that's outside the norm to an electrical circuit or to a human being, and you make too much change happen and too much too short a period of time, you have too much stress and something breaks. So if you're, if you're not, uh, used to going to the gym, you don't go to the gym on your first workout and put 800 pounds and try to, and try to deadlift it. You don't go to start swimming lessons and swim five miles in the first day. You, you, you make change over time and you make it slow. And I think a lot of people have a perception of their own space in the United States right now, whether they're politically center or right or left, I don't really think it matters. I think everybody perceives that they're being asked to change at too fast a rate than they want to change, and they're all pissed off. That they're under attack. 
That's how I think people right. feel. Yeah. Right. And you, you, yep. made, you made the perfect and, example earlier on about the, the first sergeant who's upset that we have brown boots now and we can't shine them. <laughs> it's, a, right, it, it's, right. a, it's the institution uh, does not like to change so quickly. And human nature doesn't like to change. People don't like to change. You know, you, you, I mean, go, go, this, there's a, I mean, I'll put it to you this way. Go find a bunch of military retirees. I don't care what branch of service. And most of us, so I did 25 years plus a few days. Um, a lot of my buddies did 22, 23, 25, 28, 30 years. I mean, all of my peers are guys that were retired master sergeants and sergeants major and, and a few lieutenant colonels and colonels. That, that's, my, that's my peer group. Um, you know, and none of us are like, you know, uh, on the verge of committing an atrocity and we're all these, you know, angry vets and, and we're all, you know, draining a bottle every night right, and all right. these stereotypical things. Right. But there's a transition out of the military. Um, and that's a change at, you know, midlife, right. The, 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 mm-hmm. the, the oldest, the, the youngest guys retiring out of the, out of the military, if they get out at 20 years in a day and they went in at the earliest they could, they're 38, 39 years old when they get out. Most of us don't get out until we're, 42 to 46, at least in the, in, in my small area of the world, you know, lay on top of this. So this is, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taking this far afield. And I, I hope I can come back and make a valid point, but I was just talking about this with somebody the other day. The, the part, the, the, the part that's specific to the military, when we talk about change and then within the, within the culture in the United States, within our society, and we talk about, um, uh, assimilating from the military back into, the rest of the culture, right? And this goes all the way back to the, convers- the, the, the part of the conversation where I was talking about being a professional within a profession of arms. When you really start digging into that and, and, and peel it back layer by layer, um, being a, in that profession is a much deeper commitment on a, on, a, on a mental level, on an emotional level, on a physical level than most people uh, commit to anything in their life, except maybe their, their spouse and their kids mm-hmm. and their parents. You know, we, you can't be a good special operator unless you're hundred percent committed and you're, because it's, it just requires so much of your energy, mental energy, emotional energy, physical energy to be good at it, to, at the level that you need to be to perform that your, your, your family ends up taking a second place whether you want them to or not, whether that's what your intent is or not, that's usually what happens. And so when you take that guy and, and it's true of non-soft military as well, but when you take that person, I don't mean to say guy and sound like I'm some, you know, chauvinist or anything like that. But when you take that person out of the military and you put them back in, in non-military society, they, they have a transition that they have to undergo to stop being a military person and go and do whatever else they're going to do. The transition out of the military, I, I think, is, uh, is uh, one of the hardest things people have to do. And I'm trying not to make this such a long, drawn-out point, and I apologize for that. The, the, the transition out of the military is a difficult thing for people to undergo because they're leaving something that they're so bought into and so mm-hmm. committed to that, that it's hard to leave that behind. And, and the, the way I explain this to people when I try to help folks understand you, know, you you take a person who goes in the military at 18, 19 years old, 17, 18, 19 for most of us, 
that 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 the human brain scientists tell us definitively this isn't like some um this isn't a theory it's a fact that the human brain doesn't fully develop until a person's 27 28 years old and especially for males maybe females a little earlier 24 25 but for men it's it's 27 28 and you're taking a guy who has so at 18 years old that's fully one third of his brain development does not finish until he's been in the military for seven, eight, nine years for most of us. And so I, you know, and I liken that to the, 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 the recipe of the cake has been mixed together and it's been in the oven and baked, but the last portion of the baking process, the, the, the temperature got turned up or, or the cake got taken out and put back in, or some something got altered a little bit. It's not it's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's just different than the general population. And I don't think the mil- any of the branches of the service, any of them, I don't think they do a good job of helping guys recognize that before they walk out the door back into civilian life. I think I think that we have a uh, a couple of good. We have a number of good outlets for that. We have a we have a a fairly robust. Um, defense service industry, um, which is a good outlet for a lot of a lot of vets, a lot of people getting out of the military to go and do work that they're comfortable with and with with stuff that they know. It helps them transition out. My personal opinion is that once you've been in the military, regardless of whether you do one tour of two or three or four years and then get out, or you do twenty five or thirty years and then retire, um, you're you're changed forever for what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And I don't mean that it's a bad change. It's not better than the rest of society and it's not worse. It's just different. It, it, it may manifest itself in better or worse ways, depending on the individual, but that I don't know that that's necessarily the fault of the individual service. I think that's more on the individual, um, but we don't, we don't do a good job. The military doesn't do a good job of, of putting people back out when they're done with their service. And a lot of people have, tried in, in the recent years, the last 15 years or so to, to accommodate veterans. And there's a lot of, and there's like 20,000 different advocacy groups, 401, I'm sorry, 501c3 not-for-profit groups that are specifically for trying to help, you know, veterans and combat veterans. I mean, it's like 20,000 in some odd. That's, that's kind of crazy. Um, and I don't think very, I don't think very many of them are, are as, as uh, helpful as people would like to think they are. Um, but it's it just an interesting, it's an interesting phenomenon for me that, that we, that we have this, um, there's this thing, you know, of, of, um, that transition out. And I think it's, I think it's one of the hardest things that people do. You know what? And I don't of, think most of us realize how hard it is when we, when we start on it. No, oh no, I know I didn't. Um, but it's, uh, it, it was an eye opener for me when, um, my my friend uh, Jim West he he convinced me to go talk to the shrink at VA. Eventually, he was like, "Yeah, he's like you have PTSD like everyone else. Go go talk to them." So I went there and I I talked to this uh, this psychologist and uh, you know she told me she's like you know you're a young guy. I was like at the time thirty thirty one, yeah, but probably thirty one thirty two. Right. Uh, she's like you're a young guy, you know like. You, and she was making the point. She was like, you know, you see all those guys out in the waiting room, right? They're still wearing their like uniform fragments, like they're 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 like BDU top, and they're wearing their Vietnam veteran right. hat with all the pins in it and everything. And she's like, those guys are like seventy years old now, and they're still doing that because they didn't build any life for themselves on the outside. 
And she was like, you're a young enough guy that like, you need to like do something for yourself and like build a life for yourself. And I realized like some of the stuff I was doing after I got out in the, in the venue of journalism, I was going to Syria, I was going to Iraq, I was covering these wars. And it was like, in my mind, I was, I was not a soldier anymore. And I, and I wasn't carrying a gun in these, in these conflict zones anymore, or trying to pretend that I, I was that person. But in a way, I was still in that same mentality, like that I have to go to war, that I yeah. have to go to, into these conflicts, that I have to deal with all this stuff. And it, it kind of, it began to open my eyes. Well, I mean, and I know I, I didn't, I didn't know you personally then Jack, so I don't know, but I'm going to guess that you were probably putting on a helmet and body armor every day um, in, in your mind. You were still quote unquote deploying, or maybe you weren't, but in my, in my mind, the mindset was still the same. In my mind, I thought I was an even bigger badass actually, because now I didn't have air support and I, I didn't, I didn't have <laughs> mission planning and I didn't, I didn't have all the, all these, all these, uh, cool things that you have in the military to keep you alive. I didn't have a medevac helicopter. Um, I, I don't, I don't think I ever wore body armor or a helmet when I was over there either, but, okay. but nonetheless, okay. you're right in my, in my mind, it was like a deployment. Right. That's, that's exactly, that was going to be the next thing I say. You still think you're deploying, mm-hmm. right? Because that's where you're comfortable. That's what you want to do. You yeah. know, uh, it's a good, it's a good point. You know, and I, I run into a lot, a lot of people that I know. I, I mean, I know, I know hundreds, hundreds of, of military veterans. Um, and almost invariably, I expect to, to hear somebody say, you know, they, you, you run into them if you haven't seen them for a few months or a few years, whatever the case is. And we start talking and, and, uh, probably 70%, 80% of the time, the comment I get back from people is, you know, here's where I'm working. Here's what I'm doing. And, uh, I like it because I'm still helping out the guys, whoever, whoever the, the quote unquote, the guys are for that, per, for that. I'm sorry. I break up a little bit when I talk about this. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Whoever the quote unquote guys are for that person is who they want to help. And they can't, they, um, they can't walk away from it and leave it behind. So some of them have to wear these military fragments and uniform fragments, and they'll, they'll have something on their person or some of them just do a job that helps them do that. You know, and and I, I, I mean, I, I, I spend the majority of my time, uh, all of my work right now is, um, I, I do, I do train, I do a lot of training. And if you're, if you're a, if you're a cynical, um, if you had a cynical view of the world and you were, and you were writing an article about me, theoretically, you know, I just thought it just occurred to me like in the last several weeks on this, so I'm sharing it with you. Somebody who didn't like me and wanted to do a hit piece on me would say that, that I'm training young kids to be killers. Cause I, cause I, I teach guys rifle and pistol marksmanship. I teach them how to do tactics. And I mean, if you wanted to interpret it that way, I, I look at it like I'm helping to bring them home safely and alive yeah. for their family. Yeah, you're training. If you wanted to, to turn that around. You, you could say that I'm teaching them to be more efficient killers. I'm, okay, whatever you want to call it. I don't care, but I'm, I, I don't have a, I don't have a thing. Me, me personally, I don't have a thing where I have to wear uniform fragments. I barely, I barely, I don't even like to wear cargo pants. They, I just don't like them. Um, I almost refuse to wear, you know, a helmet or a plate carrier or anything like that. Cause I just don't, 
I don't want to identify that with that anymore. I, actually, it's not that I don't want to identify. I'm just tired of wearing shit on my body. It makes me uncomfortable <laughs> and sweaty, and I just don't like it. Um, I remember you know, I talked to a retired sergeant major from your unit once uh, who's a, a little bit younger than you, and uh, I had this funny conversation with him because he was, you like you, badass sergeant major, served in the unit, and he told me, one of the first things he told me, actually, he's like, I never want to touch a gun again. <laughs> and it wasn't because right. he was like anti-gun or anti-Second Amendment or something like that. But I mean, that was his whole life for like 20 some odd years. And he right. was like, no, I'm, d- I'm done with that now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, and so I, I, I kind of fought it again a little bit when I first retired. I've been out for 10 years now. I retired in 09. And um, I, I was determined that I was going to go do something else and, and, and create a new identity for myself. And, and I'm, I don't know that I can. And I, and I, and I, I, I like doing training and I like sharing stuff with guys and I like to make, you know, I can, I can take my 25 years and, and provide some proper feedback yeah. and guidance to guys and I can help them get to where I got to maybe in only 10 or 12 years for them because I, you know, they can, they can, they can learn some things that might save their life or their buddy's life. And so I guess that's my version of giving back. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't, uh, I haven't yet, you know, uh, had to, you know, start walking around where all, where all this cool guy stuff and take pictures of myself and with my helmet and my body armor on and all this stuff. I just, cause I don't, I don't want that to be part of my identity. I would rather just be able to share with guys and maybe do some instruction and some teaching and, you know, and, and, um, but it's a, it's a hard thing to do to leave that behind. And oh, yeah. I, I know a, literally a handful of guys who actually left the, left the military and, and did a hundred, you know, a 90 degree turn and went completely somewhere else. They went to law school. Uh, they went to mechanic school. They're, you know, a, a handful of guys, six or eight of them. I could, I could name off the top of my head and, and probably no more. Everyone else is doing something that's related to, you know, this kind of thing. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I am too. I'm still here working on, uh, articles and stories and doing interviews with, with people like you. So, I mean, I still have like one foot in it. I haven't been able to leave it behind completely. Right. Right. And I, you know, and it's, it's, um, I don't know if that's cause I can't leave it behind or if I choose not to, or be, or, or if I'm, if I'm arrogant enough to believe that what I'm doing is actually helping people. I haven't, I haven't figured that out yet, which, <laughs> which one it is. I think, you know, it, um, I think it's great that if you can help people and I mean, I just think on, on a personal level, like it has to come from a good place inside of you because you know, there is, there can be a negative uh, way to go about it where, you know, if you're putting the focus on like trying to help people, I, I think that it's a good thing. And, you know, like you said, you're just using your skills and your experience to try to pass that on to a younger generation and hopefully it helps keep them alive. It, it would be, you know, Every, uh, I don't know, once, once a year, once every two years or so, I'll, I'm, I, I get a, I get a story back or a call from somebody It's like, Hey, you know, something that you said resonated and this happened and either they were able to help one of their younger folks make, make a decision or, or, uh, they were actually, you know, it made a difference in, in something and, and somebody didn't get hurt. And, uh, that, that makes me happy. That's awesome. You know, and if I only get that once every year or two. Or, or once for the rest of my life, it would be, it would be worth it. You know, it just, uh, it's pretty cool when somebody picks up the phone and says, Hey, this happened and, and thanks. 
Yeah, and sometimes but, that's the biggest impact that you have as, uh, you know, or, or in your case, a retired soldier or an actual soldier if you're working. Um, training other soldiers is a lot of times the biggest impact that you have on the force. Right, right. I, I think it's um, the, 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 the other thing that uh, this has happened to me a half a dozen times where I, where I get with uh, doing a class with some military guys. And somebody will make a comment to me and go, did you say that you're a retired sergeant major? And I go, yeah. He goes, you don't act like any sergeant major I've ever met. And I just look at him and I go, what do you think? That, what, what, what does that mean? And they go, well, you just, you just, I go, is there a certain way I'm supposed to act because I'm a sergeant major? Or is that just because your perception is different? Or, or what do you think that is? I, I'm not trying to, you know, trying to pull this out of them. And uh, they don't really know, but they're just like, it's just different, you know. I go well. Where I where I spent most of my time in the army, it was kind of there's no there's no need to act like whatever it is you're talking about. They just it's interesting to me that guys will actually make that comment. You know, um, yeah, they're they're referring to the uh, the 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 frontal lobotomy that some senior NCOs right. get at a at a right. juncture in their career. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's funny that you say that. That's those two words, frontal lobotomy, because I used to make this joke about uh, when when guys go to the Sergeant Major Academy, and I mean I've been making this joke since back when I was in E7. All right, you go to the Sergeant Major Academy, and, and two two things happen: you you get a frontal lobotomy, and they issue you whatever pet peeve they want you to have. Oh, some guys yes. get belt buckles, some guys get shined boots, some guys get haircuts, some guys get cigarette butts on the grass. Oh, like, like the, right? uh, like the, I remember <laughs> there was one Sergeant major who didn't like OD American flags, like the subdued American flag. Oh, that, that, was, that was his pet peeve. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, whatever. Yeah. It, it just kind of, but it's interesting you said that cause I, I've been, I've been, making that joke for years. It's like, yeah, you go there, they lobotomize you and then they issue your pet peeve and all you can do is go, go paint the rocks blue. You know, it's always some, some weird thing. I remember my, my old team Sergeant when I was in fifth group, because he, he, he wanted to make Sergeant major. And I remember him making the the exact joke. He's like, yeah, I got to figure out what my pet peeve is before I get promoted. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh, that, you know, when I, uh, uh, so I went to the, I went to the Star Major Academy in like 05 and, um, I'm sitting there and we, we you know, we, we, we show up in, in first couple of days and you get, you go to your NCO school and you have, you they put you in a small group, right? And, um, they go around the room. It's like, Hey, introduce yourself and state your, your goal for the course. So we had just come from the big auditorium and the, and the, the Star Major who was the commandant of the school. You, you know, when they say to me, you don't act like a, any sergeant major, I've met, well, this guy was the stereotypical opposite, you know, puffing out his chest, walking back and forth on the stage, just being a, being an ass, you know? Um, I mean, he just thought he was being motivating, but it's, it's kind of like, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at it. So I'm 19, 20 years into service at this point, just pinned on sergeant major. And I'm, I'm surrounded by all these sergeants major. We had like 250 people in this auditorium. And the thought that kept coming back to my head was our peers, our, our, Time and service peers, the commissioned officers who are lieutenant colonels and colonels, are going to a school similar to this one. At the, at the, you know, for for battalion and brigade level leadership, they're going to Carlisle Barracks and getting their master's degree. And we've got a sergeant major strutting back and forth on the stage in this auditorium on the introduction 
uh, thing that he did when we all showed up there. And he's, he's strutting like a, a, like a bantam rooster trying to motivate us. Like we're a bunch of PFCs. And he says, can I get a hua? Did you I, give I him a hua, this is what he said. <laughs> and, and everyone in the crowd, except for like me and a couple other guys, I know all sounded off with this loud and thunderous hua. Right. And, I, my, my, the top of my head blew off. I was so angry. I just about walked out because I'm just like, this is the most childish thing I've ever seen in my life. Well, it, are, is this a profession in a profession of arms, or is it exactly? Yeah. Or or is it or is it or is it? Uh, you know, uh, I, I'm still using the old school phrase, right? The old school. The, the first NCO leadership school you go to when I grew up was PLDC. They've changed it to something else. Like I forget Warrior what they call it. Warrior leader course, I think. Yeah. And so, so it's, it's that course for sergeant majors, basically. We haven't, we haven't done anything to make NCO education any better. We're still acting like dumbasses, <laughs> even though you want us to be battalion and brigade-level <laughs> leaders, right? It's, I mean, this is, this is the most preposterous thing I've ever seen. I was so angry about this. So we go back into our small groups that afternoon or the next day, and the small group leader says, okay, we're going to go around the room. Everybody introduce yourself. So I, we did. And we get, it comes to me, and I said, here's who I am, and here's where I work. And, and I said, my goal for the course is to do one thing. After I finish the sentence that I'm speaking to you right now, because I have to say the word to prove my point, I will not say the word hua again right after what I just said a second ago. And they all looked at me like, oh, yeah, you will. Yeah, you will. Yeah, you will. I'm like, nope, ain't going to happen. Because <laughs> you, you, you people are moronic imbeciles for even going down that path and acting like a bunch of buffoons. <laughs> and they looked at me. It was like, well, who do you think you are? And, da, 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 this. and I was like, look, I, I'm just telling you. And I, and I, and I made my case kind of like I did. It's like your peers, all of our officer, uh, commissioned officer peers in the military who have the same amount of service time that we have and supposedly similar experience are working on their master's degrees. And you idiots are saying who, uh, when the Sergeant major asks you to in the auditorium. So you tell me who's right or who's wrong here. Don't, don't even bring this up to me again. I was pretty angry and now I sound like I'm venting to you, but it was just like, come on, man. You sound like a and renegade that, a- soft guy, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Throw in your beard whenever you want. Just completely out of control. Yeah, I know, I know. No permission, just just wantonly run roughshod over everyone around me. But it, but it's, but it, that that's the you know, if I could if I could encapsulate or summarize this entire conversation you and I have had, Jack. Yeah. There's a there's a cultural piece that's that centers on that right there, in my opinion. Yes. What, what is it about us that thinks that you know, uh, that what what is it about it that you like like you know, my, both of my, like I said earlier, both of my kids are in the army and, and young troops have an expectation that their first sergeants and sergeant majors are going to yell at them because that's what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But yet I've had an opportunity to do a couple of different, um, small group session leader type of things with, since I retired with, with troops that are still in the army. And, and I've asked, I asked every time I ask this question, I get an answer that's contradictory to what I just said about, about young troops' expectations of their first sergeants and sergeant majors. I said, you, everybody in the room, think back to the best leader you ever had in the military, the best first, first and second and third best NCO or senior officer leader that you ever had, 
up to this point in your time in the army and, and raise your hand, you know, by a show of hands, how many of those people that you're thinking about walked around and puffed out their chest and yelled and screamed at people. Yeah, and I never got one hand from that, Jack, not one. Yeah. None of them. So how is it that, that, that we expect that, but then when we don't get it and we have a, a, a guy who's a, a thoughtful leader who, you know, who can think through stuff and just look at you as a, as a human being instead of as a sergeant first class or as instead of as a, an E3 or an E5 or an E7, whatever, it's like, hey, I need some information from you. What do you have? Let's have a conversation about something. And you, okay, well, we'll both respect military courtesy and you can address me by my rank and you know, da, 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 da. But, but beyond that, we're just two people having a conversation. It doesn't always have to be, you know, yeah. I'm going to crush you if you don't give me the information that I want right now. From the front re- leaning rest. Uh, Jason, right. uh, this has been an awesome conversation. I know we got to let you go, um, and I, I got to get running too. Um, no worries. No worries. Thank you. Thank you so much you for get- uh, uh, giving me the... <laughs> giving me a rope to hang myself and just no. talk about all this other stuff. I really appreciate no, it. No, this has been a really great conversation. Actually, I'd like to do it again sometime if you're up for it. Um, but it, sure. it's been really cool. You bet. Yeah. And I really, well, appreci- you. I and really I, appreciate I, you. Giving I, us I really appreciate it. It's been helpful for me. Good. Good. I'm, I'm glad. Um, is there anything else you want to throw out there before we, uh, we get going? No, no. I, 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 uh, I just, I just really appreciate what you're doing. And, and I, I'm thankful that, uh, that you, when, when my buddy called me and said he had talked to you, I was kind of like, Oh, okay, that's cool. You know, thanks a lot. And then, and then, uh, when this actually happened and we had a chat on the phone the other day, I thought, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. Um, you know, so thanks for the opportunity. And, and I hope, uh, I hope one person out there some, somewhere learned something or, or picked up a little morsel they can use. That would be gratifying to me. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. Um, we, we definitely appreciate having you on as well. And, you know, the words of wisdom, I definitely think there are other people out there who can learn from it. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I, I, I did lose track of the time, and you're right. I, I do have to go, and, and I know you do as well. And I really, I, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity. And uh, 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 thanks to your audience and everybody else that makes this happen. And, and uh, I look forward to chatting with you again. I hope sooner than later. Right on, right on. All right. Well, thank you, Jason. I'll stay in touch. Okay. Thanks, Jack. You do. Have All a good right. rest of your week. Yeah. You too. Take care. That was Jason Bailey. That was another knock it out of the park home run. It was a really cool. He's a really cool down to earth guy. Well said that he, you don't know what you're getting. I mean, you spoke to him on the phone. Um, That was just, it was a conversation. It wasn't like, that didn't feel like an interview. Yeah. It, it, It was a conversation. Well, and I mean, a lengthy one. I mean, really, he should be interviewing me. Uh, or uh, I'm sorry. I mean, what I mean is he's the expert. I mean, he has 25 years in the army, so I just kind of, I just kind of have to probe the wire a little bit and, and kind of. And, and he was, a, he's like, I don't, was, long story short, long story short. No, no, no. give the long answers. Yeah, we're, we're, we're here to listen. Yeah. No, I, I would have kept him on the phone for another hour and a half, but um, he has to go. He has his, his uh, training that he's doing, and I have to go run. And I have an appointment as well. So we'll, we'll get him on again sometime, though, and uh, it continue that conversation. Absolutely. He was um, well-spoken, just very like easy easy to listen to. I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't talk much during the interviews. Um, just a, he seems like a genuinely good dude. Good. Uh, yeah, he is. Oh, well, that's that, and I'm not going to – dilly dally any longer i know you got stuff to do so let me hit the ad reads and then we'll get on our way okay 
Be sure to check out Crate Club. It's a club for men, by men, of gear handpicked by special operations veterans. All tier crates are available at crateclub.us. And right now, we're running an extremely limited promotion of 20% off for all soft rep radio listeners. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we're not entirely sure how long the promotion's going to last, so you better get on it right now. That's crateclub.us. The coupon code is SOFREP, S-O-F-R-E-P, for 20% off your subscription for all crates. Sign up today. Also, as a reminder to you, the listener, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel. It's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show, Training Cell, follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel at specopschannel.com. And take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last, if you're not already signed up at thenewsrep.com, you got to get on board. There's expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard on here, like my man Jack Murphy, you got Stavros, and there's many other guest writers who pop in. With the website, you get unlimited access to NewsRep on any device. There's unlimited access to the app, you can join the War Room community, and you get invitations to our exclusive events. And it's all ad-free for members. We have a trial offer up right now where you can get four weeks for only $1.99. Sign up now at thenewsrep.com. That's thenewsrep.com. By the way, if you're not aware, we have our own SoftRep Radio app that you can download for free on iPhone or Android. And our homepage is softrepradio.com, where you can see our full archive of shows. As always, keep up with us on social media at SoftRep Radio as well. And with that, uh, that concludes episode 468. Um, it was a good one. And then we got... Uh, are, we, are, we, are we fully revealing or just a, a slight tease? Choice is yours. Oh, we... And we, we we let it come out. We let it all come out on Thursday. But uh, it's a, like a former uh, CIA officer who is going to be on the show, and he's going to be as entertaining. Like, like Jason, I don't think he's done many interviews. So right? Yeah. So another great listen. Um, Jason was excellent. Can't wait. And he sounds like he's willing to come back on. And yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, you guys' schedules are free where you can talk for seven hours because I feel like that's where that was headed. <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I knew it. Um, thank you guys for listening as always. Jack's got to run. I got things to do. Um, subscribe, rate us, review us. Oh, I'd be an idiot if I didn't mention uh, the biggest thing here. You got to buy Murphy's Law. <laughs> audiobook. <laughs> well, audiobooks. If you want to read it, read it. If you want to listen to it, audiobook. That's Murphy's Law. That's Jack Murphy. I'm Dennis Jones. This is episode 468, Soft Rep Radio. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.